1 Thessalonians 2, verse 17 through 3, verse 13. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. When we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass. And just as you know, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, it is good to be with you today. It's an honor to be able to share from the Lord's Word with you. If you haven't opened your Bibles yet to 1 Thessalonians, go ahead and turn to chapter 2, verse 17, and we're going to work our way all the way through chapter 3, verse 13, as Sarah just read for us. We're continuing in our series on the book of Thessalonians, and we're paying attention to the basics of faith. And today we're in a section where Paul is responding to a charge leveled against him that he had abandoned these people in Thessalonica. He's been answering that charge, demonstrating that he has not neglected them and certainly not forgotten them. He's not only answering that charge, but he's also discipling these young believers in the priorities of faith and in relationships. He left them with great reluctance and has made multiple unsuccessful attempts to return to them. So the missionary team dispatched young Timothy to them and was overjoyed with Timothy's report as he returned. And then Paul ends this awesome section with a heartfelt prayer for the Thessalonians. I think these verses help us understand that hope in Christ has the power to create enduring, intentional relationships. And we're going to see that throughout the text today. I think there's five strategies we're going to look at today for basic Christian relationships And those are that we must prioritize being together. We must prioritize investing into others. We must prioritize preparation for affliction. 
Prioritize discipleship and prioritize prayer. So let's get started with chapter 2, verses 17 and 18. Paul says, But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time, in person, not in heart, we endeavor the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you. I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. Do you have friends that you long to see and be with? I hope that every single person here in this room does. I know that for me, there are a few people who have invested into my life or I've had time investing into theirs that if they were to come into a room at any given time, I'd want to drop everything and go give them a hug and spend time with them. A recent study shows, though, that 15% of all men and 10% of all women have no close personal friends. That's a statistic that's quite troubling. Wayne Mack, a pastor, says, The plain, unvarnished truth is that every one of us needs the accountability that comes from former, formal, regular, intimate relationships with other godly people. He's exactly right. We see in this text that being together was important to Paul. In fact, he uses some pretty strong language and metaphors to communicate this. In verse 17, he talks about being torn away. He says, since we were torn away from you, brothers. In the Greek, this idea is being ripped away from, like parents being ripped away from their children, or children being torn away from their parents, being orphaned from each other. It's pretty strong language. He goes on to say, we endeavored with great desire to be face to face. Again, in the Greek, this term great desire is actually used as a negative throughout the New Testament to talk about passion or lust. And here Paul uses it in a positive way to talk about how much passion he had to be with these people. He follows it up by saying, I, Paul, again and again wanted to be with you. He longed to be with them. Chapter 3, verse 10, which we're going to get to, he says, We earnestly prayed night and day to see you again. This missionary team desperately wanted to be with the Thessalonica church. In the section that uh, Josh preached last week, and earlier in chapter 2, Paul uses all these familial terms. He talks about being a mother to them, like a nurturing mother. We raised you up, and like a father, we gave you direction. There's a deep closeness to this family of faith. So Paul's not only clearing up misconceptions about abandonment, but he's emphasizing how much he values his people in the time with them. Our family of faith is built in Christ and through Christ. When we come together like we are right now, we value coming together. We allow the hope in Christ to transform ordinary acquaintances into intentional, enduring relationships. We desperately need to be in community. And as I was thinking about this, I I thought, you know what, we need to be more like our kids. In particular, I was thinking about my daughter Elizabeth. She has absolute joy if the idea comes up at all that she could possibly be with her Redeemer friends. And usually it's a question is, can we come early and can we stay later? That's exactly how we need to be with each other. I know that I personally often let... The weight of things I need to do or the exhaustion of what I feel like life has dealt me somehow get in the way of the peace that I have in spending time and investing into relationships in which God has placed me. And if I'm honest, sometimes I have to motivate myself to get in a car to go hang out with a group of friends and believers. But I can tell you this. Every single time that I do, every single time I get in a car and I make the effort, 
I know I was in the right place. I was taking part in the right things. I invested my time in the right ways. God has put the Van Heist family among you for a reason, and he has put you here for a reason. We need to ask ourselves, are we growing in passion for our family of faith? And we can do that through our fellowship groups and community groups. We can do that through being here on Sundays and through our one another service to each other throughout the course of the weeks. A pastor, Alistair Begg, has said church families ought to be the type of place where there is a magnetic attraction that longs to maintain connection. A magnetic attraction that longs to maintain connection. That's how it should be for us. So our first strategy for basic Christian relationships is that we need to prioritize being together. And our second strategy is deeply connected to that, and that is that we need to prioritize investing into others. So let's go back to the text, chapter 2, verses 19 and 20. Paul says, For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus that is coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. In the last section, Paul uses strong language to communicate the importance of being together. And here, he uses a host of words to describe the reward of investing into other people's lives. You're our hope, our joy, our crown of boasting, like a victor's crown that would be given to a, to a general coming in. You're our glory. In chapter 3, verse 8, he says, For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord, these relationships are life-giving. What would we say is our crown of boasting before the Lord? I think there's a number of things we'd be inclined to boast about. Maybe it's just me and my sinfulness. Maybe it would be how faithful I've been, how good I've been, maybe how responsible I am. Those would be things I'd want to boast about. But when we look here at the text, Paul, his crown of boasting is found in the lives of the people who have been transformed by the hope of Christ. The Holy Spirit has worked through this missionary team and in the lives of the Thessalonians. And Paul is overjoyed to be part of that process. In fact, it has struck me as I've been studying this text over the last few weeks that Paul seems kind of gooey here with his words. Why is, I mean, Paul doesn't strike me as a gooey kind of guy. I picture this focus, driven, you know, the kind of person we say, man, he's got a good heart, but man, is that guy ever intense. The former Pharisee and persecutor of the church, the guy that Apostle Peter said is hard to understand. Here he's very easy to understand. In fact, he's effusive and gushy and overflowing with words for this group of people that he had spent four to six weeks with. He says, we're orphaned from you. We're passionate to be with you. You're our hope, our joy, our glory. How can he talk this way? I think when Paul encountered Jesus on that road to Damascus, his heart was absolutely transformed. He fell in love with Jesus and he fell in love with the souls of mankind. He came passionate about living the good news and sharing the good news and equipping others to do the same. Paul says, you are our joy. And as one pastor says, we need to remember the children's definition of joy. And that is Jesus first, others second, and yourself last. And when we get that reversed and we put yourself first, others second, and Jesus last, we find ourselves often in a place of misery. The me-first philosophy that dominates the human story is a hollow philosophy 
that will not only leave us lonely, but will leave us bankrupt of life and purpose. It's what leads 15% of men and 10% of women to have no close personal friends. In fact, that same study showed that in 1990, 40% of all men said that they have 10 or more close friends. And 11 years later, in 2021, that number had gone down to 15%. For women in 1990, 28% said they had 10 or more close personal friends. And 11 years later, only 11% would now say that. That's a scary trend and one that we certainly don't want to see continue in the church. One of the things that I've witnessed when I've been able to travel around the world is that our global family, our global body of Christ deeply values relationship way more than we do, to be honest. It always stands in stark contrast to our Western individualism and isolationism, which leads to significant loneliness as we disconnect ourselves from each other. Neil Anderson says, aloneness can lead to loneliness. And God's preventative for loneliness is intimacy. Meaningful, open, sharing relationships with one another. And in Christ, we have the capacity for the fulfilling sense of belonging, which comes from intimate fellowship with God and with other believers. I've got a dear friend, his name is Vernon Rainwater, and he says there's two kinds of people. My kids know this saying well. First kind of person walks in the room and says, here I am. Let me tell you about myself. Let me tell you what's going on in my life today. You're going to find it really interesting. And then there's a second kind of person who walks in the room and says, there you are. I've been looking for you. What's God doing in your life today? And we have to ask ourselves, what type of investment are we making into other people? Is there some person each week that you can intentionally make an effort to make an investment into their life? There's great opportunities here at Redeemer to invest in our children, our youth, our young adults, and peers. We just heard about the practical needs for children's ministry this fall. We're involved in youth or our fellowship groups or community groups, mentoring through World Relief Partnerships. Josh Anderson told us last week that there's 300 families that World Relief is bringing into our neighborhoods over the course of the next year. And the reality is that refugees and immigrants in transition is the greatest time to reach them with the message of Christ. Once they settle into their enclaves and the walls go up, it becomes much more difficult. Churches in Wheaton alone partnered with World Relief in the past years and saw three Bhutanese churches planted in Wheaton. Do you know how difficult it is to get into Bhutan as a missionary? It's extremely difficult. The investment in relationships should be the most rewarding thing that we do. Our investment in others is one of the most defining aspects of a gospel-transformed life. And why do we prioritize others? We prioritize others so that we can see Jesus transform their lives. There was no better, uh, no better example of the ultimate there-you-are person than Jesus is. Came from heaven to dwell among men came to be among us. And even as he walked down dusty roads surrounded by people, he took the time to look up into a tree and see a tax collector and call him down and said, I want to go to your house and have dinner with you tonight. Or he sat on the side of a well with an outcast Samaritan woman and described to her the difference between drinking water and living water. And he sat on a hillside and he let children fill his lap so he could show them the goodness of God. So are there people that God has laid on your heart that you need to invest into, that you need to be obedient and seek out? 
Who can you make time for this week to invest into their lives? So we prioritize being together. We prioritize investing in others. And third, we prioritize for affliction, which actually seems kind of strange to stick in here, but let's just keep working through the text. Chapter 3, verses 1 to 5. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. We sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. We're all going to face affliction of some kind in the course of our lives, personally and corporately. We live in a deeply sin-affected world. But today, right now, I want to draw out an emphasis here that there's a unique aspect as believers of affliction and obstacles we face for our pursuit of Christ and our pursuit in sharing Christ with others. Persecution and affliction for our faith honestly should not shock us, but the reality of it often seems distant and far away for most of us. For most of the global church, though, it's a reality on a daily basis. My good friend Adrian DeVisser from Sri Lanka says that anyone doing ministry in Asia must first have a theology of suffering before they can go out and start planting churches and proclaiming the gospel. Otherwise, they're going to be discouraged on day one and need to pack up and go home. Let me tell you about Mike Adegbe. Mike is a modern-day Paul. He's an evangelist and church planner. Mike leads the largest missionary force from the country of Nigeria. Mike has sent out missionaries around the world, including the United States, where Nigerian missionaries are today, to reach America. Mike and his wife and a ministry team were drawing, driving along the road a few years ago in a van. When their van was surrounded by vehicles, guns started being fired, their windows were shot out, they were forced to pull over to the side of the road. It was Boko Haram Muslim terrorists who had targeted Mike. Mike was ripped from his vehicle and put in another vehicle and blindfolded. And as he drove away, he heard gunfire, only to be left thinking the worst, that perhaps his family and ministry team was now dead. He was alive. He drove into the jungles, dumped into a hut in the woods. Hours turned into days. Days turned into some weeks. And Mike continued to persevere in prayer, hopeful, yet knowing that most people in these situations don't come home. In the meantime, ransom was demanded by Boko Haram, and the church was mobilized in prayer, trying to raise the money. The money was raised, yet with also the reality that oftentimes, even when ransom is paid, the person doesn't come home. Well, the good news is that ransom was paid and Mike was released. Mike was not only released, he got back home to find his wife and his ministry team still alive, and an absolute miracle. This is not what normally happens. And Mike today continues to persevere with planning churches and leading that Nigerian missionary movement. He has not stopped. He has not backed down. The prayer was mobilized by the church. God protected his hope in Christ, sustained him, and he continues to herald the gospel today, just like we saw in Paul's example. In the, in the text, we see that affliction can come from multiple places. In chapter 2 verse 18 and 3 7 Paul talks about Satan being one of the ways that affliction comes 
He says, Satan stopped us. He feared the tempter getting in the mix with these young believers. Satan is real. He's active and he is alive. The reality is we don't need to fear him, but we certainly need to be aware of his tactics. Tactics to divide, tactics to destroy, and tactics to discourage. Affliction can also come through man. We see that throughout this section and also in Acts 17, which gives us some background for this passage. That affliction came through both the Jews and the Greeks. We could say it comes from your own people and from the outside people. Maybe as a new believer, you have family members who aren't believers and may even be hostile to the gospel. And you'll have to face affliction even from within your own home. Or there's plenty around us in the society who are certainly against the church and the things that we stand for. Affliction can come that way also. Affliction can come from Satan, from man, and we may also have to deal with personal suffering as we go along, as Paul and his team demonstrated, as Micah Dagbe has lived through even in recent years. So Paul emphasizes preparation to endure and persevere through affliction. Paul taught it when he was with them. He reinforced it in his letter. He demonstrated in his life he had faced affliction in Philippi before he got to them in Thessalonica. He faced persecution there. He goes on to Berea. He faces it again. He goes on to Athens. He faces it again. Yet he continues to persevere. And even in the midst of that, he takes young Timothy and he sends him back, not knowing what he would face, just to check in on these folks. In fact, Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, and he says this, You, however, have followed my teaching, my conduct, my aim in life, my faith, my patience, my love, my steadfastness, my persecutions and sufferings that happened to me at three other cities, Antioch, Iconium, and Lystra, which persecutions I endured, yet from them all the Lord rescued me. In chapter 2, 3, 2 Timothy, 2 Timothy 3, verse 12 is for all of us here. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. We need to be people who will live boldly for this gospel. Here at home, we need to live boldly amidst a growing cultural divide and a climate that is becoming more anti-Christian. The reality is that the proclamation of the gospel is getting more difficult and it will become more difficult. In addition, globally, we need to live boldly. There's still 3.2 billion people around this world with no access to the gospel. And most of those places, people live in places where to proclaim the gospel would most likely lead to some form of affliction or prison or worse just like in Nigeria where Mike is at. But that should not stop us from declaring this life-changing, hope-filled message of Christ. And God may call some of us from this congregation to go out and go, and we need to be prepared. We need to be prepared if God is sending us, and we need to be prepared to support those that God may be sending. We, like the early church, need to prepare ourselves for affliction. We need to prioritize our time together. We need to invest into others. We need to be alert and not grow apathetic in our faith. But we need to be committed to being faithful disciples and disciple makers of others. Which leads to our next strategy. Chapter 3, verses 6 to 10. Basic Christian relationships prioritize discipleship. Now I'm just going to read verses 6 to 8 here for the sake of time. But now that Timothy has come to us from you and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, 
In all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. I think this scripture, the book of Thessalonians and other writing throughout the New Testament shows that there's two roles for every believer that we all need to fulfill. And that is the role of a disciple and the role of a disciple maker. Paul, throughout his writings and his own example, demonstrates what a disciple maker should look like. There's someone who teaches. There's someone who is in prayer for their disciples. They're an encourager. They live a life that they would want someone else to reflect. They have desire to be with them even at personal sacrifice. And they'll do whatever they need to follow up on them even by sending Timothy or someone else to check up on who they've been uh, discipling. The text also shows us what it means to be a faithful disciple. And uh, Paul says here, even in chapter 1, verse 8, that for these of Thessalonica, they had impact on others. Immediately they were having impact on other people as they took and they learned their faith. He says, your faith has gone out forth everywhere. They showed mutual love to each other. They were steadfast in their faith. They were established in their hearts. They were blameless in holiness. And they were imitators of Paul. That's what each of us should look like as the faithful disciples. Oftentimes throughout, uh, throughout the, the word, go and make disciples is often worked out through relationships. Not hierarchy-based discipleship, but life-on-life investment and interaction. And we can see Paul as a pastor here to this congregation in Thessalonica, but we can also see Paul as a faithful steward of the gospel, not unlike any one of us. He has proclaimed the truth to others and walked with them in a relationship to see them grow and do the same. In fact, when I look at the church versus the modern church, there's a stirring in my heart. The passion for evangelism and discipleship that spread like wildfire in the early church was absolutely contagious. To use present-day terminology, it was a global pandemic of faith that sprung from a few faithful disciples and spread throughout the whole world. C.T. Studd, the British missionary to the Congo, wrote about the early church. He said, No wonder the gospel spread like wildfire. First through Jerusalem, then throughout Judea and Samaria, then through Asia Minor, Greece, Europe, and to the utmost limits of the worldwide Roman Empire. They didn't start a missionary society, for the whole church was such, and all its members were missionaries. Friends, the church was not called to be an institution. It was called to be a movement. A movement of disciples who make disciples. Hear this. The church was possibly the largest force in history. Geographically dispersed throughout the world, there's no political country that does not have at least some group of believers. Resistant to persecution across the 2,000-year arc of history, the church is a survivor. Its dispersed and decentralized leadership structure makes it difficult for even large and aggressive dictatorships like the Chinese Communist Party to shut it down. Amen. So often we in the modern church and in a service-based society can put full responsibility for discipleship and evangelism on our pastors and staff. We feel it's easy and less risky to meet someone and say, hey, you've got to meet my pastor. We'll have him tell you something. Rather than being bold to share our story of faith with them where, when we are with them. As our pastor in Florida would say, when you're with people, you are the minister on duty today. 
As brothers and sisters in faith, we are all equipped by the Holy Spirit to disciple others. We cannot simply relegate our responsibility to others. To see the power of Christ transform the lost, the broken, and the unreached, we, like Paul, need to be passionate about living the good news, sharing the good news, and equipping others to do the same. And when I think of when I think of what we are a part of, when I think of the sustaining power of Christ that empowers the church over 2,000 years to be resilient and strong, to bring a message of hope to the lost and the broken, I can tell you there is simply nothing else I want to be a part of and give my life to. So a couple of reflective questions that can help us move to action on this point. First of all, who is discipling you? Are you prioritizing your own personal growth as a disciple of Jesus? Are there people speaking into your lives? Are you putting yourself in a position where others can speak into your life? Secondly, and equally as important, who are you discipling? Life on life, journeying together with intentional purpose to help other people establish their hearts blameless in holiness before God as Paul prays for the church of Thessalonica. So basic Christian relationships, they prioritize being together. They prioritize investing into others. They prioritize preparation for affliction. They prioritize discipleship. And lastly, they prioritize prayer. Chapter 3, verses 11 through 13. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you. And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all as we do for you. So that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. Paul not only demonstrates the importance of ongoing prayer for the church. He says in verse 10, we prayed for you night and day over and over again. We're praying for you. We want to be with you. But I think Paul in this section also gives us three specific ways that our prayer should be formed uh, as believers and in our Christian relationships. First, Paul prays for their relationship with each other. We need to be praying for this Redeemer family. We need to be praying for each other and growing together in our community groups and fellowship groups, it's a great time to get personal with each other. Know what's really going on in each other's lives and pray deeply for each other. So first, we need to be praying for our family here at Redeemer. Secondly, we need to be praying for horizontal relationships. We need to be praying for believers outside this church, those in the city of Aurora, those across our country, those around the world, many of whom around the world are facing great obstacles and affliction for their faith even right now. And we need to be praying for unbelievers, those who are not yet part of this family of faith. So we need to pray for each other. We need to pray for other believers, those outside of this family, and for those who are not yet part of this family. And then third, we need to pray on a vertical axis, and that is for spiritual growth and holiness. That we would be the disciples that we should be growing deeply with Christ and seeing our brothers and sisters in Christ also growing in the same way. As we pray for one another, we can pray for our relationships here in this church, the relationships with the larger church and those not yet included, and the ongoing transformative work of Christ in and through our lives. My favorite writer on prayer is E.M. Bounds, and if you haven't gotten his complete work on prayer, you should go get a copy. E.M. Bounds has said, God is vitally concerned that men should pray. Men are bettered by prayer, and the world is bettered by praying. God does his best work for the world through prayer. 
God's greatest glory and man's highest goods are secured by prayer. Prayer forms the godliest men and makes the godliest world. So again, as you spend time in your community group and fellowship groups, prioritize prayer for each other. If you're a member of this church, go online and print off a copy of the church directory. And every day, just pray for one family or one unit who's part of this family every single day and work your way through that thing. We're going to have prayer teams in our services and for the services. And Josh Anderson's going to talk about that in just a few minutes. We can pray for ministries we support or folks like the Pattersons and Lindstroms that are leaving from us and going out to another land. We need to be in prayer for them constantly and fervently. When we prioritize regular and consistent prayer for our family of faith, I believe that God will draw our hearts together and our desire to be together. God will help us prioritize others before ourselves. God will help us face and endure affliction. And God will help us grow as disciples and disciple makers. When during the day could you set aside a specific time to pray for your family of faith? All right, let me try to bring this all into one big conclusion. Paul's passion for others, his investment into discipleship, his enduring ability to face affliction and stay steadfast was only possible because the transforming of Christ, power of Christ was working in and through his life. I love how Paul ends this letter in Thessalonians in chapter 3. Verse 13, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all of his saints. It's both present and future in orientation. It demonstrates an active work of God in our lives, preparing us for fulfillment when the time that King Jesus comes back with all of his saints and unites our great family of faith together in him. That's going to be an awesome day. Jesus conquered sin. He conquered death. He conquered the grave. He arose to heaven. And He's coming back. That's good news. Our greatest priority is Christ. He's the one with the power to save us. He's the one with the power to transform us. He's the one to equip us to live as He did. With selfless passion for the souls of mankind. And throughout Paul's letters, he emphasizes these points. And I think that Romans 12 gives us a few verses that just kind of summarize everything that we've talked about today. Romans 12, starting at verse 10. And hear this as a challenge today. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. And if possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. As people who've been transformed by the power of Christ, our basic Christian relationships must first prioritize being together. We need to seek to have youthful joy to see and be with our family of faith, understanding that to be separated from each other is to be like being orphaned from each other. We need to prioritize others. We need to be there you are people. We understand that our investment in others is one of the most defining aspects of a gospel-transformed life. 
We prioritize preparation for affliction. We are not ignorant. We're not apathetic. But we prepare and we live boldly like Paul and Micah Dagbe. We remain steadfast in seeing the gospel proclaimed no matter the cost. We prioritize discipleship. We seek to proactively grow as disciples and we seek to be disciple makers of others. And lastly, we prioritize prayer. We spend time in fervent, intentional prayer for this family that we would grow in our love for others and in our holiness before our God. Would you join me in prayer?